This is Geology Bites with Oliver Strumple. There's a lot of debate about the idea that the global changes brought about by humans define a new geological epoch, dubbed the Anthropocene. Should such an epoch be added to the official geological timescale? If so, what aspect or aspects of anthropogenic change should be used, and exactly where do we place the golden spike that will define the base of the Anthropocene? Such questions come under the purview of the International Commission on Stratigraphy, whose current Secretary-General is our guest today. Phil Gibbard is Emeritus Professor of Quaternary Paleoenvironments at the University of Cambridge. In 2009, he was a founding member of the Anthropocene Working Group, tasked by the International Commission on Stratigraphy to examine the status, hierarchical level and definition of the Anthropocene as a potential new formal division of the geological timescale. Phil Gibbard, welcome to Geology Bites. Thank you, Oliver. It's very kind of you to invite me to speak. It's been 13 years now since you co-founded the Anthropocene Working Group, and you're still an active member of the group. Has it provided some officially sanctioned answers to the Anthropocene debate? Well, officially sanctioned perhaps is not quite the right term, but certainly the discussion has provoked a good deal of new and interesting approaches to the topic of the impact of humans and its extent in natural systems over the last 200 years or so. And I think it's driven the research agenda quite effectively, not only in uh, the earth sciences, which is the principal area that we're responsible for in the International Commission, but also in related subjects such as archaeology, but more particularly in the humanities. Let's talk about the geological timescale. How was it established and who administers it and how is it structured? Well, the geological timescale is a result of more than 200 years of geological research and is effectively a very substantial accumulation of knowledge which is boiled down into this what apparently rather simple hierarchical structure. The International Commission on Stratigraphy is responsible for administering the divisions that we use today, such as Carboniferous, Permian, Triassic, etc. But it's only since the Second World War that the Commission was established by the International Union of Geological Sciences to administer these divisions. And so the structure we see today is very much a product of the last half century or so of research. And we see, of course, when we look at the chart, that it has a very clear hierarchical structure with very large-scale divisions, such as those I've already mentioned, and then progressively smaller and smaller divisions, which are to divide the geological time in general. The definition of boundaries within the geological time scale is based on the recognition of indicators in the geological record, and these units are defined by their base, the end of any individual division being defined by the base of the subsequent division. So, in essence, the division of time up to the present day present day has no end, of course. Geological time is going on day after day. So the common misconception that people have, and certainly that I have, is that the significant indicators that divide the geological epochs are the mass extinctions. For example, the end Permian extinction, that defines the end of the Permian. 
but that's not quite what you said. No, that's not generally the case. The time divisions are based actually on first appearances. And for most of the record of the Phanerozoic, the last 600 million years or so, it's based on the appearance of certain fossil taxa, nearly all animals rather than plants. But in general, it's a first appearance rather than a last appearance, which is the main criterion for recognising a boundary. And the logic behind that is that we don't actually know when the last member of a particular taxon continued to exist, but we do know where we can determine the first appearance of a particular organism. So that's the basis. But not all the geological column can be divided on the basis of paleontology. Four-fifths of Earth history, the Precambrian, for example, is based on more physical evidence, paleomagnetism, geochemistry, and so on. We have to rely there far less on the few fossils that are available at that part of the sequence. And as we get towards the present day, we are using not only fossil taxa, but also other criteria measured indirectly, such as climatic changes and the like. We hope that that divisional structure is based on multiple criteria. The more lines of evidence we have, the better we feel about recognising a specific boundary. I'm reminded of a couple of earlier podcasts in which we talked about some of these paleontological markers, particularly Richard Forty, who talked about the trilobites in the Ordovician. What happens if someone discovers an earlier instance of a fossil or a species that we'd previously used as the marker at the base of a geological epoch? Yes, well, that, of course, is an inconvenient thing to discover, but it has happened. I believe the base of the Silurian, there's been a problem with the recognition of particular graptolite species slightly earlier than the officially defined base, but we don't move bases around just on that kind of line of evidence. And that's the danger, of course, of depending on one taxon rather than an assemblage of information. So the boundaries are not moved immediately unless there's a very strong reason to do so. And every boundary we have, there's a 10-year moratorium following its definition. In fact, when we're not allowed to move the boundaries around. And the reason for doing that is, you know, it would cause considerable confusion to the community. The most important thing is that the boundaries stay relatively stable or completely stable as far as we can. What about the advent of radiometric dating from which we now derive absolute ages? Do the stratigraphically determined ages then get pinned onto an absolute scale? Yes, but those numbers are not fixed in the record because the problem with using numerical age determination techniques is that those techniques are evolving, being modified, and the result is that the numbers can change with time and that would then clash with our concept of trying to develop international boundaries which are fixed in time. So, if you like, we calibrate the boundaries with numerical ages, and in the younger part of the record, we can also use the marine isotope record from deep-sea sediments, where we can recognise the isotopic changes in a cyclic fashion to provide a chronology. But that chronology is then fixed by the boundaries which we define using the criteria I've already discussed. If you like, the numbers come second to the definition in rock record. 
That's interesting. I mean, when you think of a timescale, you might naively think that really nailing down the absolute ages of when things happen would be the main purpose. But if that's not really the main point, what is the purpose of the timescale? Well, the timescale is basically about communication, allowing workers to communicate between themselves and so that everybody knows what everybody else is talking about. One of the analogies I often make is the clock analogy or the calendar analogy where we divide our time up into 12 months or our days into 24 hours. And these are simply labels which as humans we put on obviously continuous time in order that we can uh, communicate with each other and have some kind of structure to our days, weeks, months and so on. And in essence the communication we're doing in the geological column with these names is basically the same. We're just using it for communication. We're not just establishing these names because we like to give things names, but more importantly, because we need to know that we are all talking about the same thing when we talk about a division of geological time. Okay, let's talk about the Anthropocene now. What motivates people to create a new epoch? The real drive, I think, behind the Anthropocene question is that it was originally proposed by Paul Crutzen and Stromer, who recognised that we are departing in terms of atmospheric composition, in other words, the gases in the atmosphere, from what might be deemed to be the natural condition of the present interglacial in which we're living, and that that was being driven by human activity, particularly industry, of course, but also other activities. The environmental impact of those changes, which we see increasing through at least the last 200 years, was the main reason for originally thinking that perhaps we should consider a division of time to cover those changes. What man-made phenomena have been proposed to define the base of the Anthropocene? Various phenomena. The original one was the beginning of the Industrial Revolution in Europe, which is fueled, if I can use that term, by the exploitation of coal and therefore the changes in the atmosphere, which I've already mentioned, as a consequence. But many other criteria have also been proposed, such as, if we go back to the beginning of human impacts, the possible megafaunal extinctions, the large vertebrates particularly, the production of other gases such as methane. One particularly important change has been deforestation, particularly during the Neolithic in Europe, but something that's still continuing in parts of the world such as Brazil. And most recently, the suggestion of the Anthropocene Working Group colleagues was to use the nuclear bomb tests in the atmosphere, which produce radioactive elements, which are then preserved in sediments and ice cores and so on, which happened subsequent to the Second World War, particularly peaking around the early 1950s. So there's a number of other criteria have also been suggested, and one could even possibly use the use of fire, but that would take us back very, very far into the quaternary and is not really practical. What really has driven this proposal has been actually the arrival of the so-called Great Acceleration. When you mentioned the nuclear bomb and the radioactivity then the fallout around the world, it reminded me a little bit of the iridium layer that one gets when you have a meteor impact. Is it something a bit like that? Yes, it is actually. Very similar. But the question is, how is this radiogenic signal preserved in sediments? Is it going to be stable over the long term? One of the good things about that is that it's truly global. And I think that 
part of the definition of the base of an epoch is that it can be clearly recognized all over the world. I mean, that's the communication point that you made. But some of the markers you talked about appeared in different places at different times. So how can we deal with that? This is the nub of the problem, actually. You're quite right that if we are going to define a base, it has to be, as we say, isochronous. It has to be the same age everywhere on the surface of the planet. And that's why people prefer to use something like the bomb testing, because we certainly can pin that down to specific years and possibly even specific days, in fact. But it's very similar, of course, to uh, volcanic eruptions. The very largest of the volcanic eruptions can be pinned down in very much the same way. But the problem, as you say, is that human activity is not something that happened instantaneously. It's developed over centuries and, in fact, thousands of years. This is the nub of the problem, this diachronism, as we call it, which means that by drawing any fixed boundary, especially if we draw one in the 20th century, we are leaving a, a large proportion, a very, very substantial proportion of time during which humans were certainly modifying the environment, but that would not be included in a, a fixed epoch of the type that's being advocated by the working group at present. So how would you address that problem? There is a simple way to do that, and that is to invoke a concept called an event. Now, events in geological history can be anything from a single raindrop falling into some clay, perhaps, to form a little drop pit, or it can also be very much more extensive. The really substantial events in Earth history, I mean, many things are events, of course, like a volcanic eruption or the iridium resulting from the meteor impact, as you've said already. But the longest is probably the great oxidation event, which is seen in the Precambrian, where we have the first appearance of substantial volumes of oxygen in the atmosphere, which allowed the development of plants and animals. Or another example might be what we could call the greening of the land, which happened in the Devonian and happened throughout the Devonian. That's a substantial amount of time. If we look at the Devonian, it began about 416 million years ago and it ended at about 359 million years ago. So you've got effectively 17 million years. So the idea of proposing an event would allow us to include all that time, which we mentioned earlier, which would have been cut out by defining a fixed boundary. It would allow us to say that human activity and modification of the landscape and the environment in general began at different times in different places. And that seems to me to be a practical solution to a, an otherwise difficult problem of drawing a fixed boundary. And that event, by the way, will be continuing even as we speak. So that would mean that we're not really establishing a new epoch at all. In effect, no, I agree. I don't think we do, really, because we are living in the Holocene, and the Holocene began 11.7 thousand years ago, and that base is fixed in an ice core, the N-Grip ice core in Greenland. And one of the reasons for separating the Holocene from the Pleistocene is the presence and activity of Homo sapiens. Now, you could say, well, why do we separate the Holocene from the Pleistocene? And that would be a very valid question, because the Holocene, in every other respect, apart from the activities of humans and the products of our activities, the Holocene is really no more than a typical interglacial in the Pleistocene. And the Pleistocene contains about 50 interglacials. 
which occur between glacial cold events, so they're temperate events, and the Holocene is just another one of these interglacials. And we might reasonably expect, therefore, that in the future we will go back into glacial conditions once again. Those conditions may be delayed as a consequence of human activity, but the conditions which brought about glaciation haven't changed. So we might expect that the Holocene is simply an interglacial in the Quaternary. So what would advocates of establishing an Anthropocene epoch say in response to that? Well, they would come back to this idea I mentioned earlier, the Great Acceleration, as it's called, which was coined by Will Stefan in Australia. This Great Acceleration refers to the remarkable increase, particularly in the period since the Second World War, so in the 1950s and on into the present day, the enormous expansion in human activity which has produced greenhouse gases. They were produced before, but they are now produced in very huge volumes. Human construction rock excavation and the production of artificial materials such as concrete which is now produced in vast quantities and indeed plastics which are now seen as a major pollutant in both the oceans and on the land. So by identifying this great acceleration the beginning of which broadly corresponds with this nuclear bomb testing that I mentioned before allows people to say, well, the conditions are no longer similar to those which were present earlier in the Holocene, and therefore we want to draw a a fixed boundary to reflect that great acceleration. Stepping out from the Earth for a moment, the people who search for extraterrestrial life have a definition, a working definition, of what constitutes a technological civilization. But for us, It would be our radio signals now emanating out into space, which could signal our presence to aliens. Has anyone proposed our first radio emissions as a marker for the Anthropocene? No. The critical point about geological time and divisions of geological time is that they have to be represented in rocks or sediments. Whilst a perfectly reasonable thing to suggest that if there was somebody out there listening and they'd identified our radio signals, they would realise that there are beings, intelligent beings, we hope, able to produce these signals. But since those signals can't be recognised in the rocks which form our planet, we can't use that type of evidence to support a divisional scheme. So after working on the question of the Anthropocene for 13 years, Has the official Anthropocene Working Group made a formal recommendation as to whether we should have a new epoch? No, they haven't. They had in 2016 a binding vote amongst themselves where they decided that they should define a formal unit of time in the mid-20th century and they felt that the status of this unit should be high-ranking because it recognises major changes in the atmosphere and the environment. And so they selected the epoch. But at the moment, we haven't received a formal proposal. They have several possibilities, I understand, and we're waiting to see which is selected. Selected by whom and when and how will that selection be made, do you think? The selection would be made by the Anthropocene Working Group, which is a working group of the Subcommission of Quaternary Stratigraphy, which itself is part of the International Commission on Stratigraphy. And at each point, 
there has to be a vote. So the working group must vote and in turn, if that passes, it has to go to the subcommission itself, who also have voting members. And assuming that passes, it then goes to the International Commission itself to vote. And that's made up of the heads of each of the subcommissions for the whole geological column, of which there are 19. And finally, if it passes that hurdle, it goes to the International Union of Geological Sciences for ratification. And I should point out that at each stage, there has to be a 60% supermajority in favour for the proposal to be accepted. I don't know if you're a betting man, but do you think this is ever going to get through? And if so, when? Well, it's a very good question indeed. It will certainly be accepted by the working group because that will be their proposal. The next step, however, is less clear. The voting membership of the subcommission is made up of people who work on all sorts of areas within the quaternary, of which there's quite a wide spectrum. I know that there are a good proportion who are not terribly comfortable with this proposal, and so it's not clear whether that will pass. And then it goes, as I said, to the International Commission, should it pass. And again, I have no clue about how that vote will pass. If you ask me to bet, I would be very reluctant to do so once the proposal has left the working group. Has your alternative idea of establishing an event as opposed to a formal chronostratigraphic unit got any traction? Unlike the formal proposal of a chronostratigraphic unit, an event proposal doesn't require voting by any of the people I've mentioned. It's already published, it's in the community and if sufficient numbers of the community and by that I mean the wider community not just those interested in the Anthropocene but the entire geoscience community really which even includes geological archaeologists and people of that ilk if that gets traction as you say I think it could well snooker the proposal for a formal unit. So just to boil it all down at the end of the day, when do you think we might have a decision about the Anthropocene? I should imagine that it will be at least two years and possibly much longer. What do you think might constitute the base of the next epoch? I don't know. I think we're going to have to wait and see. We've seen small-scale divisions such as those we see in the ice cores from Greenland. There's two particular divisions, one at about 8.2 thousand years ago and one at about 4.2 thousand years ago. And these have produced substantial impacts on the climate of the Holocene, which is otherwise seen as rather stable. But a future climate change might well be a reasonable basis to recognise such a division. We might also, by the way, since I've mentioned paleontology right at the beginning of our discussions... We might also see possibly some paleontological change, some arrival of a new taxon, if that's possible, within the time frame we're talking about. What about plate tectonics? If we run the clock forward on plate tectonic models, might that create something that could define a significant change in the future? Obviously, it's very speculative, I realise. The interesting thing is that plate tectonics is driving the whole distribution of oceans and land on the planet's surface. And these, in turn, control the heat transfer from the equatorial regions to the poles. Now, at the present day, if we look at the map of the world, we see that the poles 
are basically isolated from the, the global oceans. The North Pole of the Arctic Ocean is effectively a big lake with very limited exchange with the oceans further south. The Antarctic continent sits on the South Pole and is covered by a very large ice shelf, two very large ice sheets. So we might reasonably expect that into the future that if we wind plate tectonics forward, which to some extent we can do because we know about the plate motions, at least in the relative short term, clearly the the further we go into the future, the less predictable that becomes. But it might be reasonable to assume that the quaternary will continue to last for another 50 million years, which means that we'll stay in an ice age because the geography of the planet will not change so significantly before that time. So the heat transfer will stay relatively restricted, the poles being cold and the equatorial regions being warm. If we contrast that with the situation in the Mesozoic, in the Cretaceous, etc., which is often held up as being the warmest period, nearest the present day at least, the distribution of the oceans and the land was very different at that time with, for example, the Tethys Ocean being around the equatorial regions and the Atlantic not yet a significant ocean. And so in that situation, you would have more efficient heat transport from the equator to the poles. Is that the point? Yes, that's the point, exactly. And critically, there's another factor here, and that is that because the present distribution of land and sea produces a very strongly zoned climate, as I've said, very warm equatorial regions and very cold poles as a consequence, that brings the Earth into a situation where it can be effectively influenced by the orbital changes of the planet, which are driven by the so-called Milankovitch cyclicities. So they appear to be the force driving the glacial-interglacial cyclicity, which we see preserved in the geological record. Once again, I think long-term that will continue at least for the next 50 million years or thereabouts. Once the poles become more open, possibly Antarctica drifts off the South Pole or something of this kind, then there'll be much more efficient heat exchange with the poles and we might expect the influence of the Milankovitch cyclicity to be reduced and the glacial interglacials climate changes also to fade. I mean, again, of course, I recognise these numbers are very approximate and speculative, but what key configuration would you expect to change in about 50 million years that makes you pick that number? Well, the question is, will the Atlantic Ocean continue to open there's some speculation the Atlantic could begin to close again after a certain amount of time, thereby increasing the exchange, for example, between North America and Asia, East Asia. There's also the question about the position of Antarctica. What are you working on at the moment? Apart from my interest in the Anthropocene, my main interest is glaciation and evolution of paleo environments during the Quaternary. I've been working in recent times on the extent of glaciation, particularly in lowland Britain during the later Middle Pleistocene. But I'm also interested in extending that and equating it with events on the near continent, the evolution of the North Sea and the English Channel. Phil Gibbard, thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you. For more about Geology Bites, as well as pictures and illustrations that support this podcast, you can go to geologybites.com.